to start the afternoon with Rob, Rob Waller, who's going to be talking about addressing spirituality in CBT. Now we've begun to touch on that as the days progress so far, and we're now going to have a much fuller discussion of it. How are we doing? Great. Thanks so much. Can you hear me with this microphone on? Okay. So, so thanks, uh, thanks so much for inviting me down. Um, I'm going to be talking based on a, a paper which is in your packs, um, but as always when you get faced with about 12 sides of, of script, Rather than read it, it's always much nicer to come and listen to someone chat about it for about half an hour. Um, putting spirituality in the middle of a, a CBT conference on um, sort of ethnicity and health. I, I'm an Englishman who lives in Scotland, so that's about my only claim to it. But apart from that, um, I, this is not a, a specialist area of mine, the whole sort of BME area. Um, although actually for a while I did work in Bradford. And um, some of the research that I'm going to be covering was based on some work we did in Bradford. But I'm now working up in Scotland. Um, I've got a very long title in the, um, in the thing, but my main job is, is a consultant psychiatrist working up in Scotland. I also work in education, and actually education in some ways is very similar to, to CBT. They're both these very similar models about um, pausing and reflecting and conceptualising and then planning your learning and doing some learning and experimenting and then reflecting on that again and seeing if you need to change your conceptualization. So although I'm not doing as much CBT now as a, as a consultant psychiatrist, I'm still very much involved in CBT kinds of models. Um, the other thing I'm involved in is something as a, a director of an organization called Mind and Soul, which does a lot of work with um, another minority group, which is the, um, the, the church in the UK, in particular the Christian church, and we do quite a lot of cognitive behavioral work with the churches. So uh, another cultural group there who have their own ways of thinking about things, their own ways of understanding things. Is, it, is this cutting in and out, or is it just yeah. me? Yeah. Can I steal the lollipop thing? It did settle oh, down. If I use this, is that better? Is, is, that, is that better? Yeah. Is that good? Okay, all right. So um, the first thing just to sort of cover is a little bit about... Um, <laughs> mentioned Mind and Soul already in the web address www.mindandsoul.info if you want to have a look um, just as an example of how we've tried to make spirituality and CBT relevant for a minority group of sorts um, and also just want to um, acknowledge my, my friend Harry Sewell who is one of the equality leads at the National Mental Health Development Unit um, who's given me a lot of information around equality and the principles involved um, and I think you know one of the things I'm going to touch on is how the equality field is is changing at the moment with the new coalition government. Um, and also going to be finally covering some of the key points in the paper about how to go about addressing spirituality in CBT. And my aim is to give seven or eight really practical points for therapists about how do you do this in practice when you're working with somebody. Um, equality's had a huge range, and I'm sure you're aware that the, the sort of BME aspect of it is just one diversity strand under the old Equality Act. There's other ones to do with age, gender, a whole bunch of different things. And the folks in the past, my, my take on it has been very much around you know, targeting vulnerable groups. Um, I was working in Bradford when the Delivering Race Equality program came out. So there is a sense in which Equality and diversity means that services are not delivered as much as they might be, and we do need to be looking at those issues about inequality. Um, a good example might be, for example, looking at the um, Healthcare Commission review into inpatient mental health services, which picked up obviously large numbers of black and minority ethnic groups there, but also very large numbers of spirituality needs identified among that group, and the two topics began to be grouped together. <coughs> But the 2010 Act, if I've read it right, and if, if Harry's been explaining things to me right, is a bit of a step forward into what we call a single equality approach, 
the idea that we're not perhaps focusing on just spirituality or religion or belief or just focus around, um, for example, a, a BME agenda or an age agenda, but that we actually need to be much more person-centred. Um, it talks about protected characteristics rather than um, looking at vulnerable groups. So I think it's quite interesting to think about how, how BME work and how spirituality work is going to fit in with the New Equality Act. Um, I see it as quite a challenge um, because it's a level playing field. You know, you're not going to be able to say, well, I'm representing an equality strand here in, in quite the same way. But I think there's an encouragement to think holistically about the person, as, as the lady before lunch was sort of saying, you know, to have an ethnicity is almost to have a spirituality to a certain extent. You know, these things are very interrelated, mixed in together, and we can't sort of separate them out entirely. And that's why it's lovely to be asked to, to speak at a, um, a conference like this. Um, if I want to give you one long word, every talk should have one long word, I'm told. And the one long word is intersectionality. And um, I'm not a postmodern feminist soci sociologist, but I'm told that this lady, Kimball Crashaw, talked about um, intersectionality as a way of studying the relationships among multiple dimensions and modalities of social relationships and subject formations. What, what she's sort of saying is that all of this comes in together. You, you, you can't just talk about spirituality in CBT without talking about other equality agendas and vice versa. And I think one strength of that might be to sort of say, well, in the past, perhaps we'd have seen minority groups as out-groups, groups that were sort of over there and different to the majority in, in, in somehow, and we tend to homogenize them. And I'm not going to try and teach you about BME topics, because I know that you know all of that, but I'm just suggesting I think the new act is, is taking us away from a focus on you know, particular groups out there in the community to actually say, we are all have equality and diversity needs, we all have protected characteristics and different aspects of that. So I think how we begin to get to grips with that is going to be a really interesting challenge over the next few, over the next few months and years. There are some references on the slides, and I'm quite happy to email these slides, or my email address is on the bottom of the introduction on the paper if you want these actual slides, but the vast majority of the references are there in the paper for you to have a look at later um, if you want to read up more about it. So if we talk a little bit about the paper, um, this started out as a symposium at the um, BABCP conference a couple of years ago, and it was one of those ones I was, I just finished working in Bradford, and I was speaking to Chris, who actually was the very last person to speak before lunch, and, and a few other colleagues, Daniel Colleton, who was mentioned in Newcastle, James Hawkins, who's an independent ther therapist in Edinburgh, and Roxana Arshad, who is, who is a, a, a Muslim lady in, in, in Brad, still working in Bradford, and thinking, well, shall we do something for the BABCP? And we had a look through their previous abstracts and previous proceedings, and we thought, well, no one's ever had anything on spirituality. What happens if we try and run a symposium? And it's one of those ones we thought it would be me and my three mates and a stale sandwich having lunch all by ourselves in a room that nobody could find. In actual fact, we had almost 100 people. The room was absolutely packed, and it was a really interesting and, and, and talked about seminar at the symposium. And what effectively this is, is a sort of writing up of some of the ideas and core themes from that symposium. It was published um, last year in the Cognitive Behaviour Therapist the reference is just, just there, um, which is the online um, BABCP journal. And there's a few sort of key questions, ideas, and so on that we thought it'd be helpful to look at. For example, if a client has a very strong faith, but the secularist is, is, is secular in some way, how, how does that actually work itself out? And there's also the vice versa position. What happens if the, the therapist has got a very strong faith 
and worldview and thinks that things like spirituality are important, but the client is, is very secular, shall we say, for want of a better word, in their approach. Um, also, when you're talking about spirituality issues, is this just red herring or is this real therapy? Um, I'm, I'm an evangelical Christian by background, so I get, I get chatting to lots of evangelical Christians who want to talk about how their faith relates to their mental health and so on. And they're fascinating conversations, but often I'm left with the impression that we've done a lot of really interesting fizz and maybe in the middle failed to do good therapy. So I think that's something to bear in mind. And you use shortcuts and... Um, you know, so I think actually really thinking this stuff through is important. How do you tell whether this is a real issue or actually just a really interesting topic? Where does the background sit with religion or belief, faith groups, spiritual? I think most of you will be aware of the idea that people sometimes talk about religion as being externalised religious behaviour, such as going to church or mosque. Um, belief as being internal thoughts, spirituality, existential in some shape or form. And also, what is good CBT? Is good CBT good enough? Or does it need adapting? And it's quite interesting when you think about um, the models that are out there. For example, you know, Clark and Wells' model of, 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 of PTSD or, or the, the, the models of PTSD, something like that. Is, is that CBT? Or is actually CBT the skills that we bring to CBT, such as measured by the Cognitive Therapy Rating Scale or something like that, which to me is far harder to do CBT using that kind of skills-based approach than it is to just go in there and chot out a model and bung it up on a whiteboard, which often my clients don't get and probably your clients don't get. And that maybe does need to be ethnicised, spiritualised, etc. Whereas one of the things I think I want to say is that good CBT perhaps doesn't as much because that is a set of inherent interpersonal skills. So when we start to write a paper, obviously one of the things you do first of all is see what is out there. And uh, we did a, a sort of systematic review of sorts. We never sort of wrote it up as such, but I did do a lot of literature trawling. And what I was able to find was around seven papers looking at Christianized CBT, um, a handful on Judaism, Taoist approaches, other approaches, a couple looking at some models as to how this might be delivered or adapted, and a couple looking at non-faith group but still spiritual issues, looking at virtues and um, strengths and characteristics and things like that, a different way of approaching spirituality that's not within a particular faith group. And um, what I found looking at the sort of Christian approaches was that there was a, a recommendation to sort of almost bolt on Christian behaviour. So for example, we'll do some CBT, it was all manualised, it was all done in the Bible Belt. Not that good stuff doesn't happen in the Bible Belt, but nothing had seemed to be done on it outside of that, apart from one paper I tried really hard to get the unpublished manuscript for um, in England, which I, well, I couldn't. Um, but um, looking at, you know, bolting on some Bible reading, bolting on some prayer, bolting on some church attendance, which didn't seem to me to be integrating spirituality into the CBT. It was more recommending behaviours that I guess most of us would think is a fairly good idea, but so is washing your hands after contamination a good idea. It's a problem in OCD. So these things were not necessarily being critically appraised. I then began thinking about third wave CBTs and ideas like mindfulness and and um, dialectical behavioural therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, looking at symptom toleration. And one of the things you find when you look at this area time and time again is that mindfulness is introduced as a Buddhist concept. 
And it is a Buddhist concept, but I wondered how does that fit in with, well, actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff to do with mindfulness in the other world's religions, and I'm going to come on to that as I talk about mindfulness a bit later on. I like a lot of Paul Gilbert's work, but I often want to broaden it to talk about fasting, centering, prayer, things like that from other traditions than Buddhism. So when we put the paper together, we put some really, um, we keep it simple, therapist pointers in there, and this is the first of them. Do not make assumptions about a people's faith or belief based on ethnicity or background, or whether spiritual factors are relevant to their current problem. There is wide variation. So just because you've got depression and faith and maybe some ethnicity in the same room doesn't mean that those are related, or maybe it does. You need to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. We also got chatting, and I think one of the really interesting things about the group on that panel is that, is that we had a whole bunch of different people. I'll, I'll just go back to the sort of list of people who are on the panel, because although I'm a consultant psychiatrist, Chris is a consultant psychologist, Daniel's a consultant psychologist, James is an independent CBT therapist, Roxana's a CBT therapist, that's sort of who we are with our professional hats on. Who we are as people is quite different. Um, I'm an evangelical Christian. Um, Chris, I may be... Um, we would say that he's sort of agnostic from a Christian background. Um, Daniel is, I don't think he might have said it because he said it at the symposium, is from a Catholic background, but as we were hearing, does a lot of work with Orthodox Jewish community in Gateshead. Um, James is a humanist, unashamedly so, an atheist by background, and, and Roxana is, is, is a Muslim. So, so how will these different people bring their perspectives to it? I don't think you can separate that out. And, I wondered if I ought to say who, who people are actually on that list. And I think, well, actually, it is important, because I do think we bring our own spiritualities and um, equality strands to, to talks and topics like this. And one of the things it enabled us to do is have a look at some religious models of the mind that are already out there, and in actual fact have been out there for thousands of years. So the first thing you do in good CBT, and again, you know, the main message from today is it's not so much about thinking about a model, it's about doing good CBT. And the first thing you do is you sit down with the client and you spend some time reflecting and you spend some time conceptualizing because even if they have ended up with a model that might fit with the Clark model one day, where it starts out is that person probably learned to do those sets of things at some point in their life when that made sense to them and probably if you were in their shoes you might have done the same thing. So we've got to try and get back to that sort of formalization in a non-stigmatizing place. And um, so to, to bring in religious models into that is easy. It, it just involves having a couple of pairs of ears involved in there as to how the person learned to behave and think in the way they're learning and behaving and thinking today. And Islamic psychology, um, there's a chap called Al-Ghazali. And if you look on the internet, there's a whole topic area around Islamic psychology, which I hope we're going to be seeing a little bit more of. And uh, he talks about these domains of the soul. So, for example, heart and spirit, soul and intellect. And although I'm probably doing it a huge disservice, I'm told by Muslim colleagues that it's not a huge step to begin thinking that that might have some relationship to the five areas of Chris Williams. And what you've then begun to do is you've begun to sort of say, well, can you think of different, what would you call thoughts? What would you call behaviors? What would you call the sort of inner emotions? And then you can begin to be using some of their kinds of words. Um, in the Christian uh, tradition, for example, in the Pentecostal tradition, there's a guy from Bradford called Smith Wigglesworth, and he talks about a distinction between body, soul, and spirit, which are three of the words in the New Testament that are sort of used to describe 
what's going on, you know, the, 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 the earthly body, the, the heavenly spirit, the soul, sort of somewhere in between. Is that kind of distinction a useful distinction that we can use to place some of our cognitive models around? And um, one of these things, when I start talking about things like Al-Ghazali and Pentecostalism and Smith Wigglesworth, some people go, well, that's easy for you. You do a lot of stuff about spirituality and mental health. I don't know any of that stuff. And I think what I'd say is, yes, I do know a fair bit about some of the various different models, but actually you don't have to know that, because the last thing I want to do is disempower people. Um, in actual fact, good Socratic questioning, good listening, reflection, conceptualization will help you uncover the models that the person has for their own health. So for example, even if you are dealing with a Pentecostal Christian who believes in body, soul and spirit as being a key way of thinking, what you really want is you want to know how that actually works out in their head and how that works to their, how that works out in relationship to the problems they're coming along with today. Yeah. Someone's lost a handbag. Just tell me what, tell me what it looks like. A small brown canvas handbag. Has anyone seen that at all? Or moved it? Questioning is the heart of this. Just because you don't necessarily share a person's faith or know the intimate details of it doesn't stop you from asking questions because what we're interested in is how do they think about their faith and relates. Um, Christine Podesky said that in good Socratic questioning, both the client and the therapist leave the session surprised by what they discovered. And um, I think that's a really important thing to remember as we begin thinking about bringing things into CBT like ethnicity, like spirituality. We shouldn't have our standard models on the whiteboard in front of the patient at the beginning of the session. They should be maybe in the back of our heads to remind us that there's things like, for example, thought action fusion, body distortion. You know, depending on the disorder we're working with, we need to be working with the models that are generated from the clients primarily. And I think if you do that, you hope you're not going to make a lot of mistakes. The other thing, of course, is to remember that there's variation. Sorry, yeah. I'm going to come on, I'm going to, come on to that. <laughs> I covered it very briefly, but you might have missed it. I will, I will come on to that. Okay. So, for example, even there's variation within faith groups. So, for example, even if you are a Christian, there's a huge variation between how Catholic Christians think about things, Pentecostal Christians, um, Evangelical Christians who are not Pentecostals, etc. There's as many groups and divisions as, as there are people in this room, if not more. So, just because you might have heard one Christian model doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. The, the important thing is to be listening, listening to the person. And I think also being aware of what's common and local to you. And um, we were hearing earlier about Daniel's work in, in Gateshead among Orthodox Jews. He's made an effort to understand what happens locally. And I'm sure that's something that you are doing. But perhaps there's ways that we can actually take that further in our local areas. So um, therapist pointer two, working within a client's faith and worldview can enhance the degree to which they understand formulations. 
Socratic questioning, good Socratic questioning will aid discovery on this and you do not, do not need to be an expert. Someone at the seminar said, people are complex and so are religions, exclamation mark. CBT has tools which will understand these complexities. And I think that's a, a fair point. You know, we, we, we have a system for understanding how things relate together and we shouldn't necessarily let things we haven't heard of flummox it. If, if you came across someone who had a, um, I don't know, a, a, a watch phobia, Never met a watch phobia before. Uh, how do you do it? I don't know. Same as any other phobia. Okay, we, we, we've got tools to understand these things. Okay, now there is something here about psychological models of, of spirituality and belief, and I'm going to come on to answer your question here, because I think part of this is about making the therapist feel comfortable as well as making the client feel comfortable. And it's a particular challenge, I think, if you are a secular therapist or a therapist who doesn't have a faith and feels very out of their depth in this area, um, working with someone who wants to bring very strong faith perspectives. So what we tried to do on, on this slide is share a model that we put together when I was working in, in Bradford to sort of very simply look at how you might put ideas around faith and belief and religion and that sort of thing into a current model. And it, it goes something like this. The, the idea is that um, there's certain things which are behavioral. So, for example, um, visible religion, such as going to church, mosque, temple, various rituals that are performed. And I think even a person who is anti-religious can encourage that, those kind of behaviours. We know from behavioural activation work that getting people out of their bed once a week to do something, to be part of a faith community, etc., is good for their mood. And even if you're not agreeing with any of the spirituality stuff, we should all, and I think, hopefully I'm preaching to the converted here, but when you're back talking with your colleagues and so on who attempted to sort of poo-poo spirituality a bit in CBT, you can agree that perhaps behavioural things can be encouraged. They can also be encouraged across faith boundaries very openly. I mean, for example, when I was working in Bradford, as I say, even though I'm coming from a Christian position, I didn't have any problem in encouraging somebody to go to mosque or to pray five times a day because I knew it was good for their depression, purely from a behavioural point of view, regardless of what else I thought about it. And then there's a next level up, which is the cognitive level, looking at um, belief or faith. And these are perhaps some of the thoughts that we have about our religions. So, for example, some of those might be positive things, like um, God loves me, or I am valued, or I have a role, or something that's positive things. There can also be negative things. So, for example, I feel guilty, I feel ashamed, which I think most of us would agree are not what the world's religions are aiming to engender, but quite often they can for a whole bunch of different reasons. So thinking about approaching, they are just thoughts about religions from one way of looking at it and bringing them in there um, at the end of the day. And then existential sort of level, um, thinking about things like spirituality. There's a whole bunch of different terms out there, religion, belief, faith, spirituality. I could try and define them, but there's actually about five definitions of each term. So very simply, religion is the observable outward things Cognitive is the thoughts, both positive and negative, that we have as a result of our thoughts. And then there is this existential spirituality, the other, that kind of thing. I've, I've put in a slightly sort of teasy way at the bottom there, is there a fourth level? Um, as an evangelical Christian, I, I believe, for example, I believe in miracles, I believe in healing. Now, those things are not on that list, because I'm not expecting everyone in this room to share those things with me. I, I would put those on as a fourth level. But I hope that we would all find ways, and also with a, with a secularly orientated audience, that we could engage with aspects of the first three levels. And there are, of course, advantages to, to having an agnostic position as a therapist. Um, 
to have a very atheist position as a therapist, I'd say, can actually be quite difficult, whereas an agnostic position can be a great advantage and it can allow you to work with a whole bunch of people. Um, there's a couple of references down the bottom there. A chap called David Enoch, who's a, a, a psychiatrist in Bristol, has written a book called I Want a Christian Psychiatrist! Exclamation mark, in which he, he very strongly espouses the virtues of a Christian going to see a Christian psychiatrist and all that can be done there. Um, but the flip side of that is, is Tara Gormley, she's a, a private CBT therapist in London, who for her declin psych thesis actually came out saying it's sometimes better to see someone who doesn't share your faith group because Actually, if I'm talking to a Christian, we slip into shorthand, we slip into a whole bunch of assumptions. It's actually easier to really work stuff through, really nail it down and say, what do you actually mean by that? And if I'm talking, when I was in Bradford, I was talking to um, Muslims and the Asian community, I'd say, well, what do you actually mean by that? What is a jinn? Please explain it to me. I, I, I didn't know. I knew a bit more by the end, but I, you know, they actually had to explain it to me. And if I could find a way of doing it without... Um, being dismissive, I think it was a genuinely a helpful procedure because they could say, well actually yes, I believe some things about that that are part of my religion, but I realise how I've actually begun to believe other things about them that I've just sort of slipped into an easy way of doing them, I've never really thought through. And now we're thinking it through, I can see how I can be flexible in that area, but still be true to my faith, etc. So there can actually be advantage of working across the faith boundaries. So the, um, the, the third sort of therapist pointer using a simple three-domain model, behavioral, cognitive, existential, and possibly the fourth. Most spiritual practices and beliefs can be attended to within familiar formulation models. And I think that's an important thing to remember if you're taking home messages from this for um, workforces perhaps where not all of your colleagues share your interest in this. <coughs> How does this work out in practice? What does it mean to address spirituality in the course of a session? And um, one of the criticisms of the NHS and of psychology in general has been what I call the secularization agenda. You know, we used to go and see the country GP who, who knew us and knew our mother and all that kind of thing. Whereas now we go and talk to machines and people put stuff into the therapy and don't feel as if they're getting anything back. And that's partly where, where cultural sensitivity comes from, but also spiritual sensitivity. People do not want to go and see machines. They want to have a human who's empathic, who's got the therapeutic relationship, etc. And they often want to know a little bit about what the therapist thinks. Not in a creepy kind of way, but just because a little bit of self-disclosure can be helpful. And we've got a lot to learn, I think, from the um, work we've done in childhood sexual abuse or in suicide, for example. You can ask questions about suicide without making people jump off a bridge immediately. You know, you can ask sensitive questions about suicide. You can ask sensitive questions about childhood sexual abuse. You know, I often say to people I'm working with or doing an assessment on, you know, how was your childhood? Um, did anything... Did anyone shout at you? You know, is it a violent home? You know, and then I might just say, did anything else happen? And I just put in half a question like that. Or I might say something like, um, you know, when it gets really bad, how bad does it get? Have you ever had any really dark thoughts about not wanting to be here? You know, we all have skills and techniques as to how we ask about abuse and how we ask about suicide. And perhaps asking about faith could be one of them. Um, the GMC guidelines, General Medical Council guidelines for doctors are very clear. You should normally only discuss personal beliefs if they are relevant to the clients in front of you. And I think these things very are clearly relevant, particularly if a client asks me or if spirituality is very relevant to the reason that you're seeing them for their CBT. Um, and there is a slight issue about taking up space. It, it is their time, and a bit of self-disclosure I think is helpful, but they don't particularly want to hear all about your faith because you've only got 
50 minutes with them and you've got to do some CBT in there. So again, this is why it's actually quite useful to work with people from a different faith background because there's a, a, a lot that you can just do there and they're interested, but then you can get on with doing good CBT. The Christian Medical Fellowship have a, have a question they suggest doctors ask. They say, do you have a faith that helps you at a time like this? So you're introducing the idea around faith, trying to ask questions perhaps around faith and belief rather than religious observance. Um, you can ask about both if you want to, but it's one of the best reasons why the question sort of pitches in at that cognitive level or existential level. Um, Mental Health Foundation, their big study, they said, what gives you hope or meaning? How can we help you feel connected to this while you are with us. So again, saying this is something about your faith and your spirituality that's relevant to the problem you're consulting us with. And the Mental Health Foundation also go on to say data collection and service adaptation flows on from that. So the fourth point is that asking a simple question such as, do you have a faith that helps you at a time like this, can open up the area but not cause offence. You can make your own question up, you can change it, it doesn't really matter, but it's something we ought to be asking everybody. Partly because I think we all know that if a person does have a faith, it's going to be implicated in how their thoughts and their spirituality and their CBT all fit together. So we probably ought to be asking. Now, one of the things we began thinking about is, um, like I say, I hope to a certain extent here I'm preaching to the converted who are at ease, hopefully, with the BME agenda within CBT. Relatively at ease, I suspect, with many of the issues around spirituality in CBT, although you might not have heard a talk on it before. But... Um, Therapists are quite often spiritually out of their depth, and faith groups are feeling clinically out of their depth. So, for example, although very, um, I, I'm not isolated, but very, very sort of clearly boundary faith groups will try to sort out many problems in-house, they're coming to see you because they've got out of their depth, and that's the experience that Daniel Collison had in Gateshead near Newcastle, where the Orthodox Jewish community were saying to him, we need a psychologist, we, we can't sort this out in-house. And although we're worried about getting misdiagnosed, our faith poo-pooed, etc., we want a psychologist. And that was actually a really good time for Daniel to say, well, I need an Orthodox Jew to explain how all of this works together. And what actually happened was he had a meeting. He had a meeting with the, the, the leaders of this faith community before he met the person. And Chris was reminding me earlier that he, he apparently wore a very nice white shirt. And they decided that because he wore a white shirt that he was a man to be trusted. But it did actually go deeper than that over time. They met a few times, and he was effectively sanctioned or given permission to work with the Orthodox community in Gateshead, which I think is a really interesting um, way to do that. Another reference, someone asked about the Orthodox Jewish community. A guy called Simon Dane, D-E-I-N, is a man from Jewish background, does a lot of work with the Orthodox community in London. His wife, interestingly, is an evangelical Christian. Very interesting couple to talk to. But he's done a lot of work with the Orthodox Jews in, in London. So... Um, it does make sense to work together, but it happens so infrequently, doesn't it? You know, we want to know, are these beliefs typical of, for example, evangelical Christianity or Catholicism? Are they mainstream? Or are they idiosyncratic but allowable variations? People have a favorite saint, for example, something like that. Or is it illness-driven, illness-related, very bound in the formulation? You need a little bit of local knowledge. And actually, a really good thing to do is find that out for yourself. It can't be left to chaplains. So a key message is it can't be left to chaplains. There are not enough of them. They're all tied up with inpatient work. You know, so we need to be getting out these skills into the actual workforce. And also, people who have a strong faith often prepare, prefer to see their own faith leader rather than the hospital chaplain, who sometimes they can perceive as being too liberal or not enough of faith from their background. So you, we've got to be working to the faith group that this person is from. 
And um, the process I mentioned a bit there about um, Daniel already being recognised as safe, ongoing relationships, and make use of structured approaches such as the care programme approach, multidisciplinary meetings. I know as a psychiatrist that I love it when someone brings someone to an appointment. Because then it's not just my job and their job, but someone else is involved as well. And I know when I used to work in Bradford that, for example, psychosis was much better outcome among the Asian community than it was among the white community where people dispersed and detached. You know, I love it when family members come to an appointment. It can be a bit mad and you haven't got enough chairs and that kind of thing, but we can work with that, okay? So invite people in. If you're doing CBT, perhaps not to every session, but why not to the first session and the middle session or something like that? You've only got things to gain. And if you're not familiar with moving outside of one-to-one -one working, learn some group therapy or some family therapy skills because they're really useful. So the fifth point there, um, both therapists and faith leaders can greatly benefit from working together. Consider using CPA and other multidisciplinary structures as well as referring to chaplaincy. Now one question of course is when you get into the nitty gritty, you are perhaps aware that there are some things to do with their faith that are embedded into their formulation that you don't agree with and you want them to quote, change. And I think this is where it gets slightly controversial, and I think hopefully most of you are aware that change is not the goal, in the sense that neither do we anymore want to change somebody, their age, gender, um, ethnic, ethnic background. We're not out to be changing those things. What we're out to do is to be helping people with the problem. So there's something in here about thinking, well, what can we believe together, or what is helpful from a spiritual point of view and from a psychological point of view? Um, Carl Gustav Jung said psychiatrists are the new priests. Most psychiatrists who I speak to want to give that job back. Um, but actually, you know, we can both believe in good CBT together. We can both say, I would like to help you with these problems, and I'd like to do good CBT that takes into account your own position, and I want to try and understand it with you. We can work collaboratively for good CBT work, collaboratively, guided discovery, Socratic question working in there. So what is helpful? The, the systematic review said that bolting on stuff like church attendance, Bible reading, and the prayer was, was the way to go, but it wasn't a real systematic review. There was no, not, no outcomes really associated with it. And I don't think that's the way to go, because those things can be just as harmful. Think of a guy who's had a heart attack, and he's been to church every Sunday since, and he ain't had a heart attack since. Well, this is to be encouraged, unless it turns into health anxiety, in which case you might like to challenge a little test of missing a Sunday and crossing your fingers and all that kind of stuff, okay? Can you cross your fingers in spirituality? I think you can. But one of the key things here is this excellent paper, I've put most of the references in the paper, but by Thwaites, James Thwaites and, um, and Mark Freeston, um, and they, they, they talk about the idea of form over function. So for example, the form of helpful church attendance and unhelpful health anxiety church attendance, you can't tell. By looking, they go to church on Sunday, they participate in the service. You can't tell whether it's a helpful or an unhelpful behaviour from the form it has. Likewise, prayer. Prayer looks like prayer. If prayer looks like anything, you can't tell. But one thing you can do is find out the function that person is giving that behaviour. Is it a safety behaviour? Or is it maybe, down a couple of clicks, a coping mechanism which has become slightly overvalued? Or is it actually just a behaviour which is completely unrelated, and this is why good formulation, good CBT is so important at this point. So we need to demonstrate that the behaviour is, is causing or is linked into the illness. It doesn't always have to be, for example, silence, the great tradition of silence in, in all religions, it doesn't cause depression, okay? 
We all isolation and silence and sitting at home talking to no one causes depression. No, it doesn't. It, it depends on why you're doing it. Um, and some good things like um, surveys, you know, asking other people from your faith community if, if they have the same beliefs as you. Um, just some chats and comments I put in there, sisterhood. But, you know, what advice would you give to your friend if you had this kind of thing? And, you know, you might be able to get somebody to say, well, actually, I would never tell my fellow Christian to do X, Y, and Z because that's just something I do. And then you can get into a discussion as to why is it something they do and where did that come from. And also sort of sainthoods, the idea that people are going for a sainthood, ideas about perfectionism. I think we all kind of know that there's a bit of a, a, a joke in there sometimes about, you know, the, the, the sort of um, cognitive distortion about, you know, going for a sainthood, offering such high standards to yourself, but actually not requiring such high standards of other people. Yes, Spirituality, to a certain extent, is about being holy and about being pure, but you can stop a bit of a joke about going for a sainthood. And there is a difficulty with behavioural experiments. Um, if I have OCD and I'm worried about washing my hands and contaminating something, if I stop washing my hands, hopefully the time lag to when I've learned that I'm not going to die of an overwhelming infection is a, is a few days or a couple of months. Slightly more difficult if you're working with someone who's got health anxiety around HIV. It's rather more difficult when you're dealing with stuff that's of eternal significance. So, you know, for example, if I don't do this in a certain way, I'll go to hell. But we don't know the result of that behavioural experiment until the person's died. And that's not an enormously helpful experiment for 12-session therapy, I suggest. Unless you have an adverse outcome. But my point is that you know, behavioural experiments are perhaps not quite so helpful as you might think and as useful as you found them in other ways. However, the planning and setting up of an experiment can still be quite an insightful time, even if you can't, for various different reasons, follow it through. So, therapist pointer. When there is seemingly relevant material to discuss, do not forget to do good basic CBT, where form can be differentiated from function and so formulated only if needed and helpful. <coughs> All beginning with F's. So just just to remember that, and the Thwaites and Freeston paper really does explain that very clearly. It's very helpful. There is, however, a danger at this point. I think of reductionism, and um, one of the things I was talking at a, 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 a Christian conference recently about CBT, and one of the things I was saying is, is the goal necessarily symptom reduction? Because Christians follow Jesus Christ, who ended up on a cross and suffered and was isolated and rejected. So if the goal is symptom reduction, you might not be following Jesus, if that makes sense. And there's times in our lives when actually the goal is not symptom reduction. Church, the church has a long history of martyrdom. Other faiths have got a long history of martyrdom. The goal here is not necessarily symptom reduction. And I think that's one of the criticisms, perhaps, of um, second wave CBT, in that it may come around and bite you on the backside. Because the person may say, I'm not in that, that might be your target to decrease my BAI or my BDI or something like that, but actually I've got slightly different targets for therapy, which is I want to be able to live alongside these symptoms. And I think third wave approaches can give us quite a, an insight into that. Um, people are asking, you know, the why question is more important than the how question. That's, I guess, one reason why we have faith and belief and religions. You know, we, we may or may not agree with the Big Bang, but we still want to know why. Is that happening? So, so the sort of very empirical, um, outcome-driven, model-driven approaches of some of the second-wave CBT might not be quite so helpful when you're trying to deal with some of the nitty-gritty issues around faith. And I've found sort of third-wave approaches to be quite helpful. Some of the ACT approaches about acceptance and commitment therapy, about holding thoughts and beliefs lightly. I've just put the Hayes reference in there because 
right from the beginning in 1984, where, where um, he first started out looking at um, spirituality and, and a behavioral analysis of that, through to 2005, where that quote comes from. Um, this idea about holding thoughts and beliefs lightly, that you can agree to disagree and perhaps separate the extent to which that belief has to be part of their formulation without challenging with a capital C a person's morals or making their faith seem stupid or not appearing to value it, which I think is one of the big difficult areas we fall into. Um, the capacity to accept and forgive yourself, the whole sort of recovery approach within mental health services, that you can still be well even in the presence of symptoms. Um, compassion and being kind to yourself, the whole idea is behind mindfulness-based CBT, dialectical behavioral therapy I've spoken about beforehand. These things are extremely important when we're dealing with, for example, issues of um, perfectionism or, um, I can never remember the right word, but, you know, excessive holiness, pernicotiness, you know, very, very high standards. The, these therapies are very effective at dealing with those, whereas perhaps first and second approaches are less so. And a lot of this ties very closely into some of the world's spiritualities. And like I say, it is, it is, although it's got Buddhist roots, it's also got roots elsewhere. So thinking about things like meditation, centering prayer, fasting in a number of traditions, um, pilgrimages, um, poetry in the Sufi tradition. There's many of these things that, that take us outside of Buddhism and are very closely tied into third wave approaches. So um, we can use third wave approaches in, in line with any faith group, I'd suggest. So just the seventh therapist point there, which is my, my last therapist point. Acceptance and commitments approaches can be used to enhance fundamental values, the person's fundamental values, that is, and also to accept and forgive and make contact with a sense of self without undermining faith. And I think if you're going to be doing a lot of CBT work with um, patients of faith, you're going to have to be using third wave in there to, a certain, to some extent. Okay, just to wrap up, where are we going for now? Um, next steps in spirituality and CBT, and I think one of them is knowledge of good practice. Um, today, the other talks today as well, they've all mentioned and touched on spirituality to, to some extent. It does exist, we need to get that out there. And actually, I wonder if the sort of single equality model is, is going to help with that to a certain extent. We need to develop skills among CBT therapists and related people, which is quite great, such a huge turnout here today. Also, other mental health professionals, you know, there's been an idea that... Um, Ancient paper, 1967 apparently, the paper was from, that said that psychiatrists, generally speaking, are a fairly unbelieving bunch. Um, I don't think that's perhaps quite as true as it used to be, but um, to a certain extent I'm preaching more to the converted in here than I would be if I was to be addressing a general NHS conference. And also developing the skills within faith communities, and that's one of the things that Mind and Soul is very much trying to do, is to have a, a church that understands um, stigma around mental health problems, about depression, about um, you know, some of the strategies that are available that are not at conflict with, with the faith's beliefs. And a lot of stuff around awareness raising. So statutory agencies are going to have a duty under the Equality Act to consider how a person's perceived diversity needs to be taken into account. Some of that is going to be around monitoring, but in our sort of period of austerity, there might not be too much monitoring going on. So I think we need to think about how much we're going to do elsewhere with the third sector, with voluntary agencies, skills and networks. I was, we were talking earlier about Daniel being sanctioned, if you like, by the Orthodox Jews, but keeping that network going, making sure it's a two-way thing, regular meetings. Do you know the priests, the imams, the people in your local area who you're working with day in, day out, and all of your clients are seeing as well as you. 
Um, and faith communities, they are partners in the holistic delivery of healthcare. And I think that's why it's really important that we've got to value social capital. One of the reasons I'm proud to work for the NHS is that it's always valued the poor and the underprivileged in society and has biased its services toward that. And I, I think that's quite an exciting thing to be part of. And I know we don't all work for the NHS here, but I guess we all work for bodies who are having a bias towards, towards the poor and, and other groups as well. And faith communities are, have shared that over the years and are often there as well. You will find churches in those places, you will find mosques in those places. So it's an exciting place to be working. The legislative framework, just to wrap up, the, the coalition agreement came out May 2010 and sort of, um, I, I did ask earlier if you had a lot on sort of equalities legislation and, and stuff today, you, you happened apparently. So, Please forgive me if I'm teaching grandmother to have a suck eggs, but there was a whole strategy developed by NIMI under the last government. It all sort of froze and stopped in round about May 2010. And we had the um, thing from the coalition agreement, freedom, fairness, responsibility. Good sounding words, but I think we're still waiting to see how that works its way out into policy yet. But it is there under equalities, be AME, black, Asian or minority ethnic groups people who are held back because of gender, race, religion, or equality, but the idea of the, the single equality strand, as I was saying. And also, the, the, the um, section about the NHS, section 22, the idea of patients being in control of their own treatment, not just about choosing which hospital they had their hernia in, but actually having their voices and their preference and their ideas held, heard right at the beginning of um, treatment, and services having to adapt as a result. As I say, the period of austerity is going to be resulting in rather than sort of lots of investment in this and people going around checking that trusts and health boards have met these criteria, it's probably going to be about improvements in service user-defined outcomes. There are some concerns about the lack of monitoring, you know, is the Act going to have any teeth? But I think we can be working very much at a sort of grassroots kind of organic level. Um, who's going to be doing this? Um, National Mental Health Development Unit have had a big stream on spirituality and mental health. That's the other Gilbert, Peter Gilbert there, his book in, in purple, looking around spirituality and mental health. And the NMHDU resource is still there. Um, NHS Education for Scotland, of course, I come from a completely different legislative area up in Scotland where we don't have the Department of Health, we don't have NIME, we don't have IAPT. All of this makes it very interesting. But what we do have is NHS Education for Scotland, who just fund a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the things they fund is a spirituality stream and chaplains uniformly across the NHS. You might be struggling in your trust because they've sacked all the chaplains. You can't do that in Scotland. And I, I, think, I think that's quite encouraging. Um, and also, um, the patient and society are going to be big drivers in this. So that's just for me to wrap up. The key, key take-home messages, I think, are, first of all, do good CBT. Secondly, develop networks, and um, thirdly, it's about a single equality situation now. Thanks very much, David. Thanks, Rob, for keeping to the time. Um, we've got a little bit of time for questions, so any questions, comments at this stage would be welcomed. Uh, you've given us a very useful sort of perspective, which I think we've been touching on a little as the mornings progress. I'll, I'll try and use this, but it, having sat at the back, it's really good to wait for the microphone. Actually, It'll just be just be two sets because it's a funny L-shaped room. Can you? Is this one now working? Yeah. Good. Uh, thank you for thank you for the talk, firstly. Um, it was very uh, very enlightening. Uh, just uh, on, on one of the points that you made about uh, therapists and faith leaders or faith leaders <laughs> working together, 
Uh, have you seen um, the, the third issue that comes in often with a lot of the people with, uh, that we're dealing with is the language issue? Yeah? And have you had any experience with this kind of triangulated uh, approach uh, in terms of, you know, that one person brings the, you know, or, you know one the therapist brings the clinical expertise, um, you know, the, the person from the, the faith background, whether an imam or a, you know, or a priest, can bring uh, expertise from the spiritual side of things. Uh, but then you actually need a third person in between to kind of interpret between the two. Definitely. I mean, um, my experiences of working with interpretation in, in Bradford, I mean, roughly half the people I saw in Bradford were through an interpreter. And it depends very much on the interpreter. And there's a nice sort of middle ground where the interpreter's a little bit involved. Um, sometimes they're not giving you any translation at all. Sometimes you get nothing but the interpreter. And the person says one word, and you get 50 words from the interpreter, and you have to go, whoa, you know, did they actually really say that? Um, and the same problem is there with family members who, who are interpreting, I guess. And I, I guess, you know, a, a key thing to do is probably a mix of things, isn't it? A good interpreting service, an ethnically diverse workforce that we're going to talk about later on today, where there are those language skills. Um, and also probably a little bit of patience. Um, I learned how to say hello, goodbye. I know the word for, for tawes in, 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 in Pakistan, for black magic, you know. So you, I, I get to know some of those things when, when, when that comes out. So. Um, hopefully that's a helpful sort of thing. I, I didn't get as far in my early as some of my colleagues because I was only there for a year before I met a Scots girl who dragged me north. But had I stayed, I, I think I would have made an effort to um, I would have made an effort to learn a bit of the language, even if only just to sort of show willing. Right, there's one on the front. The microphone's going to pass you by. That's why. Um, thank you very much. Your talk. I, was, I suppose I was reflecting on how attitudes towards uh, clinicians, practitioners, and spirituality have changed in, over the last four decades where I've been working. Uh, when I qualified in the 70s, it didn't matter what religion you were, it was something that was not disclosed and not discussed. It wasn't that, that psychiatrists and psychologists <laughs> weren't religious, um, nor indeed that they were agnostic or um, atheistic in their practice. It was simply out of the domain of. Um, Therapy, and I suppose I was reflecting on your um, your decision to disclose. Um, you make a, quite a, a thing of that, and that that's important in, in terms of establishing trust with with your client. But supposing we were talking about your political beliefs, mm. you disclose those, mm. or your your attitude towards women, or, or whatever. And I'm wondering, have have you reflected on how that in itself, once you've disclosed that you're uh, evangelical Christian has on the listener and the kind of assumptions they might then make about what is safe to disclose to you. Def definitely, and I, I should have been clear, sorry, I mean, I'm more than happy to say to you guys I'm an evangelical Christian and be sort of upfront about that because partly because it explains what I do with mind and soul and partly because I think it's, it, it's, it's helpful for, for you to understand where I'm coming from. In, in clinic, I rarely do that. Um, so all I will do, and I, I'm not, I don't do it every time, quite often I will say, have you got a faith that helps you at a time like this? And invariably, I don't actually self-disclose. Um, I mean, they may or may not see there's a Bible on my bookshelf, but that's about the only marker in my room. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a small one. It's not like a big, huge one or anything. It just happens to be there. So, so I'm, I'm relatively discreet about it. And I suppose my point is, well, if it comes up or they ask. But generally speaking, I'd say that as far as my self-disclosure of work, it's actually fairly minimal. Um, the thing I do find is that quite a few people look me up on the internet. Um, 
and often don't tell me that until after the first session or the end of the first session. So, so that's quite interesting. But I guess you know, if I wasn't doing stuff like Mind and Soul, I might have a large internet site about my, my gardening or something like that. You know, some other hobbies. So, um, you know, it, my self-disclosure. I've, I've got a public presence on the internet. I self-disclose more to you guys. But, but hang on a second, religion is not the same as gardening. It's not, or it is. I, 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 this, is this, this is the thing. This is the thing I love. This is the thing I love about the um, Equality Act, actually. You know, bringing it back down to, to a sort of single approach is actually to sort of say, well, this is, this is up for discussion now at that point. Now, I think, you know, people will look, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to go back the other end, which is I don't have any internet presence at all. I mean, yes, I have more internet presence than perhaps some of my colleagues or something, but I do a fair amount of teaching and training, and it sort of goes with the territory. This might end up on the internet. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, I, I have to be me in the same way that my, my, my clients have to be me. And I suppose what I don't do is I don't deliberately and consciously bring that into the um, consultations I have. If they've looked me up beforehand, then perhaps we can discuss that if, if, if that comes up. I don't, as a rule, bring it up apart from people often say, you know, do you believe doctor or something? And if that's the case, I will say yes. So I'm, I'm not particularly self proactively in my self-disclosure. Okay, I'm going to take one more question and then we'll move on. But you will have opportunity later. It's a bit of a practical question, actually, for a practitioner. I have an eye at, she's on simple and quick answers to that. First of all, people do vary, and I'm probably more towards the sort of vocal end of the spectrum. As I said, I'm, ironically, I'm not particularly with, um, when I'm working with patients, I'm, I'm honestly not, you know, but I mean, in terms of talks like this, I'm, I'm very clear about it, and I'm, I'm not saying everyone has to be, you know, have a major research in it, and all this interest in it, and all that sort of stuff. The second thing is, um, I think, you know, you have to sort of just work with the person who's, who's in front of you, so, you know, at some point there has to be a could I ask why you asked that? Or, um, you know, and you can, you can do that. I mean, you can sort of say that's a really interesting question. Um, 
we've got an agenda here. And we, 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 we've got a CBT agenda. Would you like me to answer that question, or would you like us to get through the rest of the things that we plan to do in this session? Um, but I mean, you know, jo joking apart, I think you know at some point you need to be getting back to how that fits in with the person's issue that they presented with. And I think the third thing to say, and I, I do actually strongly believe this, is I think this work is challenging for therapists because it forces us to think through things that perhaps we're not as thought through on as we perhaps thought we were. And I think the, the lady before lunch made a comment that perhaps we're not quite so different from our patients. Um, you know, we're one bunch of beggars telling another bunch of beggars where to find bread, I guess. Um, and, you know, it, you know we, we may have some answers from a textbook, but actually they have answers in their own life. And I think, I think a lot of this actually really, I mean, I know working as a white middle-class male in Bradford, it challenged a whole bunch of things about what I thought about ethnicity. Likewise, when we start looking at some of these kinds of things in, in our faith and spirituality and our practice, it's going to challenge a whole bunch of things in us as well. Thank you very much, Ron. I think we will be to move on, I'm afraid.